BetMGM has an unreal deal for sports fans in Virginia. Turn $5 into $150 instantly when you place your first wager at BetMGM. Simply download the BetMGM app and sign up using code CHAMPION150. Then, place a $5 wager on any sport. You'll receive $150 in bonus bets, regardless of your wager's outcome. And if you think the fun stops there, the king of sportsbooks has plenty of surprises in store. Check out daily promotions, same game parlays, live bets, and so much more. Download the app in Virginia today and get $150 in bonus bets instantly from your first wager only at BetMGM. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Virginia only. New customer offer. Subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Please gamble responsibly. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C. Welcome to the Three Down Nation podcast. I'm Justin Dunk, joined by John Hodge and J.C. Abbott. Today we're discussing the Edmonton Elks getting shut out for the first time in 47 years, boys. The retirement of four-time All-Star offensive lineman Derek Dennis. Darian Grant's sensational punt return touchdown for the Winnipeg Blue Bombers. Touchdown Atlantic selling out for the second consecutive year. And our picks against the spread for week three of the CFL regular season. But first. Tiger Cats QB Bo Levi Mitchell left Sunday's week two loss to the Toronto Argonauts with what has been officially listed as an adductor injury. Head coach Orlando Steinhauer has already ruled him out for Hamilton's home opener, though he is expected to dress in a backup role behind Matthew Schiltz. What do you make of the injury to Mitchell and what this means for the Ticats? It seems like this injury could be week to week, but based on people I've talked to in and around the league and the Tiger Cats, a lot of those kind of people are staying tight-lipped on this right now, but it seems like it's going to be week to week. And you look at the way that he was walking off BMO Field, had the ice pack on it, and how he was very gingerly moving around Tim Hortons Field during practice on Tuesday. And that makes me think that this is an injury that's going to be keeping him off the field for longer than at least a week. That said, I think he's going to want to get back on the field very quickly. And one of the reasons why I think that that's a possibility, at least right now, is because the Tiger Cats, according to Orlando Steinauer, and this could change, are planning to dress him for Hamilton's home opener. Now, talking to some personnel people around the league and executives and people who have dealt with the salary cap, they're wondering – if there's any chance that Bo Levi Mitchell would be out for six weeks, why would you not put him on the six-game injured list right now and save that cap money? So Bo Levi Mitchell's contract for the 2023 season is $502,000 in hard money. There's $18,000 in there in what we call playtime. So he could get up to $520,000. That's every time he starts a game, plays 51% or more of the snaps, he gets a thousand more dollars than the 502. But of that contract, the $502,000, $300,000 was a signing bonus. $175,000 was base salary, which is paid out on a per-game basis. So you look at this, and if he's out for six games, and I'm no mathematician here, but it could save you you know, in and around $50,000 on the salary cap. And you can always pull him off early, but you could potentially have that savings. It's around 
$9,700 in change per game that you would save if Mitchell's not going to play and going to be out for six games. Obviously, the Tiger Cats don't want him to be out for that long. But the only reason that I can think of that they're going to dress him this week is because they have a bye week coming up. Perhaps they'll see how Mitchell feels in this lower body injury and if he can get back after the bye week. And they don't want to make a snap decision on bringing in a quarterback on a short week. And just for the listeners who maybe don't know, the CFL has two injury designations, the one-game injured list and the six-game injured list. Players have to actually be injured to be put on the six-game injured list, and those players do not have their game checks count against the salary cap. Players on the one-game injured list do not have to be injured, and the reason for that is their salaries do still count against the salary cap. So it's not a cap advantage to to lie and say, oh, yeah, this guy pulled a hamstring. He's going to sit this week. And a lot of teams actually use that that one game injured list essentially as extra roster spots, because if you're not paying them uh, or, or if, if you don't want to cut a guy, right, you want to keep him around, you, you may as well do it. In fact, the BC Lions will use an example right now. They had five players on their one game injured list this past week who were all healthy. The only guy who was actually hurt was Lucky Whitehead. And not saying BC does this, but sometimes you'll see teams around the league point at their injured list and say, well, look at how banged up we are. And fans kind of go like, oh, yeah, that makes sense. You guys are losing because you have so many injuries. And then it's like, well, hold on. <laughs> you got 12 guys on the injured list and only seven are actually hurt. Like you're, you know, so I, I track that stuff in, in my own roster tracking. But that was the strange thing to me, Dunk, is, is when Mitchell was ruled out, it was like, OK, you put him on the sixth game. And that way, if he's gone for six, you save that whack of cash. And by him not doing that, you'd think at least that that the Ticats feel as though he's going to be back within that six week span. But to me, my main takeaway from this, because that was the question I make that obviously the CFL's script writers this year were affected by the writer strike down south because nobody would have ever written this to be the way that this went right. Steel town, super hungry fans. You got the long gray cup drought. They go and sign, you know, the veteran gunslinger, two MOPs, two great cups. He's not even going to be available for the home opener. Like how much does that suck? I'm not saying it's anybody's fault. I'm not blaming anybody, but what could have been an amazing storyline, especially if the tie cats got off to a hot two and zero start instead, arguably Matthew Schultz is the better quarterback right now, which I don't think anybody would have said, Going into the season, but Bo Levi Mitchell did not look good. He's got one touchdown, four picks. And those picks, boys, are generally from terrible decisions. He did two that he threw this past week. He threw a duck in the end zone of Duke Williams. And then he went on a on a lofted ball to the to the backcourt of the end zone. He threw straight a double coverage. It was the easiest interception of Deshaun Amos's career. So so far, you know, it's disappointing from Mitchell, um, maybe Matthew Schultz will be able to do more with that offense. And if he does and he wins that home opener, I'm interested to see what type of reception Mitchell's going to get when he presumably comes back into the game. It's an interesting question because Schultz impressed me a lot last year when he was coming in for Dane Evans, almost unseated Evans in the time he was in. Unfortunately, had a bit of an injury at the time when he was just about to take over that starter's job ended up handing it back to Evans and then having to sub in a couple more times. But this is a guy who is no spring chicken by any means. He's almost 30, but he moves around really well. 
He has that athletic ability to get outside the pocket, to take off with his legs. He's fast. He's got a big arm. He makes good decisions, and he's played good football for the Hamilton Tiger Cats in the past. Right now, Bo Levi Mitchell is absolutely none of those things, and you don't want to see a guy like that get hurt. But if you're watching that game, even before he went down, you are wondering, well, is it time to put Schiltz in? Because clearly this team doesn't have a spark right now with Mitchell at the helm and he's still got to build some chemistry with that receiving core and that might take some time but Schiltz has that already built in so this might give the Ticats actually a little bit of a spark this week to have somebody with experience with that roster take over and potentially benefit Mitchell in the long run to sit back for a little bit watch learn how those receivers move around and maybe once he's healthy come back with a little bit more uh, understanding of his his own offense and, and what he needs to do for for everyone around him to be successful. No, I think it's simple, man. Just stop turning the football over. He knows the offense. It's very clear to me. He's somewhat comfortable in it. He's just made some terrible decisions. And Hodge, to your point about the script writers, the Tiger Cats fans don't want to see this script play out again because they've seen this before in the past. Casey Printers, Jason Moss, Henry Burris, all quarterbacks who were, let's say, politely on the back nine of their careers that the Tiger Cats gave big money to did not pan out the way that Bob Young and Scott Mitchell had Grey Cup vision. So I'm not saying that's the fate of Bowie by Mitchell because that's still to be written. But the Tiger Cats know this script all too well. They're fans, I should say. Well, and you could even add Zach Kolaris to that list with the ACL tear. You could add Dane Evans to that list, who signed a big money deal going into the 2022 season. Yeah, this we're not even in bad sequel territory. We're in like Fast and the Furious territory, where we're on like number ten. It's crazy. No one has ever called Bo Levi Mitchell fast in his career. Furious a couple times, never yeah, fast. Furious. Never fast. Anyway, we digress. The Edmonton Elks were shut up for the first time in 47 years, losing 22-0 to the BC Lions on Saturday night in Week 2. JC, you had a prime seat to the snooze fest, which followed an outstanding performance from LL Cool J. Taylor Cornelius threw for 98 yards in the loss as the Elks managed a measly 139 yards of net offense. Boy, some nights that's a quarter, not a game. Chris Jones has said his team will stick with Cornelius for week three. Do you think that's the right decision? Do not. There is nothing I've seen from Taylor Cornelius in that game or, in fact, the first two weeks of the season that gives me any faith that he's going to turn his performance around anytime soon. And you mentioned that LL Cool J concert before the game. He was as advertised, energetic, moving around the the field just absolutely dripping more sweat than I've ever seen a single human being produce and when he walked off the stage he was more drenched in in sweat and more fired up than Taylor Cornelius was after his performance he looked dejected he looked like he didn't have any answers and a couple years ago when when Trevor Harris was there and, and Cornelius first came in and and Harris was shipped out of town I noted that for all his other flaws, at least Cornelius had some fire in that moment. He was passionate. He was, he was you know, out there in the media saying the right things, bringing some passion to that franchise. I didn't see that after this game at all. And that's 
extremely concerning to me, given the fact that you could not design a worse performance for a team than what the Edmonton Elks had. I mean, less than 100 yards passing guys on basically what was 58% completion percentage. That is unacceptable. They were not a threat the entire game. And Edmonton, frankly, needs to make a change that will give them some spark. But unfortunately, they made the decision to give Cornelius a whack load of money way too early, and they don't want to move on from him because they'll be on the hook next season if they do. I think you got to make that decision because Chris Jones has to understand he's coaching for his job. And yes, the pressure pressure has ratcheted up here, but he's on a series of one-year contracts essentially under his agreement with the Edmonton Elks. And who cares if you have to move on from the guy that you gave CFL starter level money to, as long as you start winning football games, that's all Victor Kui and the Elks board is going to care about is if they see progress on this team. And it's too bad because I think there has been some marked progress on defense. The special teams, you know, could be better. I think they could be a little bit more disciplined overall, but the issue with this team right now is Taylor Cornelius. I hate to say it, and we're going to continue probably to rail on this guy. I think all three of us agree, but there's a lack of energy in this guy. Like he is as boring and as dead as a doorknob. Like this dude just seems like he doesn't infuse any energy and have any natural leadership abilities with this team. You got guys like Geno Lewis, Stephen Dunbar Jr., Dylan Mitchell, Kevin Brown, who looks like a great young up-and-coming running back, a solid offensive line, and you throw for less than 100 yards and you get shut out? Like, that's inexcusable. To me, either Kyle Oxley or Trey Ford should have been put in that game in B.C., to shake something loose with Cornelius so he can understand that his job is on the line right now. And Chris Jones needs to understand the same thing. I think he does, but we're not seeing it if he doesn't make a change at the quarterback position when, and that is not if, it's a when, Cornelius continues to struggle because he's going up against, for my money, the best defensive game planner in the CFL right now in Corey Mace for the Toronto Argonauts, who has a deep unit with Flo Ormolade in there coming full speed downhill, Sean Oakman and the rest of that defense played some quality football in their home opener in that win over Hamilton and frustrating Bo Levi Mitchell. I think they can do the same thing against the corn dog and eat up all they want of that dude. So I think there needs to be a plan in place for Trey Ford or Kyle Oxley to play when Cornelius struggles because it's going to happen. To me, the only way that the Elks can fix this Taylor Cornelius thing is to get him doing what he's actually good at. This is a guy who I think we have forgotten was Edmonton's leading rusher last season. He had 500 yards on the ground, seven TDs. This is, uh, I mean, he's 6'5", right? 225. Like, he's built, he's big, he's thick, but he can run like a gazelle. And so far this season, he has, in two games, a grand total of two carries. They're asking to be Peyton Manning back there when at best he's like a poor man's Cam Newton. I'm not talking MVP, whatever it was, 2015 Cam Newton. I'm talking about like New England Patriots Cam Newton who can win your games. It's not going to be, you know, super pretty, but but he can get, you know, get the basics done. So I, I like you guys, I do want to point a finger at Taylor Cornelius because I think he deserves that. He's not been very good. But obviously the game planning around him has been a massive problem because we know it's not the weapons, right? The receivers are as good as any team in the league. Uh, the running back is as good as any team in the league. The offensive line 
has not been great. I think Andrew Garnett has really struggled at left tackle, but the offensive line has not been bad. It's been, you know, I, I would call it mediocre overall. And with a competent game plan and proper scheming from offensive coordinator Stephen McAdoo, I think this offense could work. Because let's look at the numbers, guys. I've got the passing numbers up here in front of me. The C- I'll call them the CFL's well-guarded statistics that you know <laughs> seemingly are unavailable almost everywhere. Are we sure these are right? Uh, I, I would give these a ninety-nine percent chance of being right. So, so take okay. that with a grain of salt. Um, though more positivity I think, than I have. <laughs> well, this is, and I should say, this is from StatsCrew.com, which scraped last year's statistics and still has them on their website. So these numbers from twenty twenty-two, I'm confident are correct. He threw for twenty-seven, sixty-eight yards with eleven touchdowns, nine interceptions. So far this year, he is worse by literally every metric. His his quarterback rating this year boys is worse than it was when he was a rookie in 2021 playing on a terrible team that literally led the board of governors to fire or board of directors there to fire everybody right head coach gm president everybody so it's it's crazy to me that taylor cornelius is playing worse now than he was as a raw rookie with far worse weapons in edmonton on an offense in 2021 that made trevor harris look bad so yes cornelius deserves the blame but the, the point I'm trying to make is there's a lot more at work here that I think is holding him back. And unfortunately, one would think that all of those things are going to hold back Kai Loxley or Trey Ford or even Jarrett Daigie, who is on the practice roster right now. And I thought looked really good in limited action in the preseason. So uh, I do not have high hopes for this Edmonton team right now, but hopefully they prove me wrong because Lord knows those fans in Edmonton deserve a home win. You heard it here first. Jared Daggy is the answer at quarterback for the Edmonton Elks, right, Hodge? No? Okay. Hey, We're moving on. Teach me how to daggy. <laughs> Let's get it going. There are two points you made there I, I, I want to briefly touch on. The first, I think you're absolutely right with, with Stephen McAdoo having some of the responsibility here. I, I was not impressed with the game plans in in either week. In week one, Chris Jones actually came out and, and was vocally critical of the fact that they took too many shots downfield. There were too many vertical routes in that offense. They forced Cornelius to hold on to the ball far too long. And his response seemed to be to take no shots, to throw no vertical routes, to have nothing down the field at all against BC. That offense was entirely anemic. Now, as much as we can be critical of McAdoo, I think we all know the realities here. And that's Chris Jones is not going to place this on the shoulders of Stephen McAdoo and do anything because those two are knit very tightly together and they're a package deal. So in reality, no matter how much we can be critical of McAdoo, the responsibility is going to have to fall on Taylor Cornelius or whoever's under center for the Edmonton Elks because McAdoo is not getting fired. The other thing that you mentioned there, Hodge, is Cam Newton, and I'm glad you bring up that comparison because I've used it before in, in that the strategy for the Elks this season was to go the Cam Newton route. And I've talked to old Panthers scouts back from his MVP heyday, and what their instructions were at that time was Cam Newton has a great arm. He's super athletic. He can win us a championship, but he's not accurate enough, so we have to get a certain type of receiver to benefit him we need tall guys who can go up and get the high ball which is exactly what the Edmonton Elks did this offseason bringing in contested catch guys who can make incredible plays like Eugene Lewis and Stephen Dunbar Jr. and compensate for the quarterback well it's gotten so bad with Taylor 
Cornelius under center that they're not compensating anymore. You look at the numbers and it's absolutely shocking. Besides that one 100-yard catch by Eugene Lewis for a touchdown, which, by the way, was thrown in behind him and was all on the receiver, basically none of them have any production. Eugene Lewis, one catch on three targets last week for nine yards. Dylan Mitchell, who was out here saying, I'm getting 2,000 yards this season, guys. I'm going to have one of the greatest seasons of all time in the CFL. He's got two catches for negative four yards through two weeks of the season. Steven Dunbar did nothing in week one, had 40 yards. He was a veritable star this week, right? These guys need to get opportunities to be more productive because we know All of them are stars in their own right. They're all guys who can make plays for you. But right now, the quarterbacking situation is so bad. Those balls are not even being placed in the same realm. They are not in position to do what they do best. Man, I had no idea that Dylan Mitchell had fewer receiving yards than me at this point. Give me an agent, boys. (laughs) Give me an agent. I would pay to see that, Hodge. I might need an agent. I'm getting warmed up over here. I think I can be better than the quarterback. <laughs> I'm ready. Janeiro Grant's 92-yard punt return touchdown against the Riders was three down nations play of the week. Maybe play of the year, man. That thing was epic. Hodge, you talked to the legendary CFL return man, Henry Gizmo Williams, a outstanding idea about whether or not it was the greatest return of all time. What can you tell us about it? Well, I've been very impressed by the amount of feedback this article I wrote, and obviously you can check it out on 3downation.com, received. I seem to have struck a nice balance because I I think I've received an equal number of tweets saying that I'm an idiot for even suggesting that this is the best return of all time, and also (laughs) that I'm an idiot for even suggesting it's not. So I think that's (laughs) that's the right balance uh, from some people who are bomber fans, some people who are bomber haters, and some who I think are are pretty much Winnipeg neutral. Um, I'll say this though: Henry Williams did not think that this was the number one punt return of all time, and that was, by the way, the reason I reached out to him. My first thought when this suggestion was out there that this could be the best of all time, it was like, well, hold on, what is the best of all time? I don't know. Um, I you know, and and so a lot of people seem to to say at least I, I you know talking to. And by the way, shout out to Andrew Hoskins, our Edmonton contributor who helped set up this interview with the Giz. Uh, he said it's the 1987 Great Cup. Uh, Henry Williams return up the sideline from from that game. I, I wasn't sure. Gizmo himself said that his best return, he didn't say the best return, but he said his best return was a punt return he had in 1993 against the Calgary Stampeders. We have video of it in the article if you want to watch it. We also have video of the Jaronarian Grant return if you want to watch that back-to-back. And the Giz essentially said his was better because the Saskatchewan Rough Riders were simply terrible when it came to the tackling. Like The defensive group was was really poor. And on the one hand, I think that's valid. Uh, on the other hand, isn't that is it breaking tackles part of a great return? So to me, I think that this is a grand debate. Um, I think it's one that that a lot of people are having fun with at the moment. And if there's one thing I really want to come of this, I want to see a top 10 video somewhere. And we don't have the access to the archives, boys, so we can't do it at Three Down Nation. But somebody with access to the deep archives of CFL punt returns, I want to see a top 10 compilation so that this debate can be had in full because this is a league that is celebrated 
special teams and the return. It's something that is dying in the States, right? The NFL doesn't really have great returns anymore. In the CFL, we seem to get very good returns every week and great returns every month. And this one was, I think, truly exceptional. So I want to see a top 10 candidates list, maybe in the off season. And that would be a great opportunity to talk about this more. I can't believe I'm going to do this because it's not in the shot right now, but right behind me and to my left, right above my fireplace is a framed and autographed photograph of Gizmo Williams. But I'm disagreeing with the Giz here. He's the greatest of all time. But I think Janarian Grant's return was better than any he came up with during his career, including the one he mentioned in that video. I think it is a legitimate contender for the greatest of all time. Now, there are returns that have happened in bigger moments, right? This is a week two matchup. In terms of its importance, it's certainly nowhere near the top of the list compared to punt return touchdowns that happened in Grey Cups, even like Janarian's last year. But in terms of the difficulty level, the amount of broken tackles, the way he wove across the field, I came away stunningly impressed by this. And everyone was out there on social media saying it was one of the, if not the greatest return of all time. And so I did the thing I do when I want to check to make sure I'm not in my little social media bubble bubble i go and talk to my 65 year old dad who is not on social media and has no clue what's on there and i said did you see the game last night he said yeah i saw what i think was the greatest return i've ever seen in my life and so that is my check he watched all of gizmo's career and i think he's right now my one caveat before i give dunk his chance to talk we need someone to dig through the archives because I think anyone who returned punts before the year 1975 deserves a special shout out. And that's because before that point, there was no blocking allowed on punt returns in the CFL. If you're able to house one with no blocking around you, I think you deserve a little bit of credit in this conversation. But I haven't seen those videos, so I'm going to go with Janarian Grant for now. Recency bias, I think, is creeping in for you here, JC, because Michael Pinball Clemens <laughs> has his hand up here and wants into this conversation. He's not knocking down the door. He's freaking pinballing around like he did so many times to the end zone. I think this is a very subjective debate, okay? Admittedly, JC, you need to take off the cloak right now and reveal your bias. I think that signed picture of Gizmo Williams gives it away, but your proud dad there, and you are lifelong green and gold fans, okay? So when you're talking about this, I think that needs to be removed. And I like how you didn't even say that it was the Giz and that you actually challenged this guy. So my man JC ain't afraid of anything, but I think we need to see all of these returns, as both of you guys pointed out so astutely, side by side by side. CFL, we gave you a free idea. TSN, heaven forbid, we gave you a free idea. This is something that should be in TSN's pregame show leading into Thursday night's game. And I would challenge them as well to have an interview with Gizmo Williams. This is the type of content that we know on 3 Down Nation the people want. I think TSN needs to do a better job of this. So they should have this queued up. If they don't, they got time now. 
from when we released this thing to get it ready for Thursday night's game. And they should talk to the kids because I th think he's one of the guys that can rule on this. Certainly Pinball Clemens should be a guy you should talk to, even though he doesn't really like giving his opinion. But Hodge, TSN and the CFL should be paying you extra money for these great content ideas. They know where to get. They, they know they know where to reach me. I'll set up that direct deposit. Here we go. <laughs> Uh, but historically, just for context, the Giz has the most punt returns in, in CFL history. It's not even close. He had 1,003, which is insane that he brought back 1,000 punts over the course of his career. The next most at 659 is Paul Bennett. Paul Bennett only had one touchdown return, but his average was 9.6 yards, which is right there with a lot of, of great returners. The number two guy, and, and Henry Gizmo-Williams, of course, has the most punt return touchdowns at 26. Second is not Michael Pinball Clemens. Second is Keith Stokes at nine. Pinball is third with eight. And then Janarian Grant, despite only playing 35 games, is next at seven. So when it comes to the Giz, that is the context of how crazy his numbers are. Not only does he have the most, he has the most even compared to the next three guys behind him combined. So that's why I reached out to the Giz. And hey, why not have Giz give his top five, even just from his career? That'd be a great place to start. I, I had one for the article. I thought five would be too many. But uh, anyways, good times. And and you're right. That's a great, great idea for TSN's pregame. Chad Kelly threw for 238 yards in his 2023 regular season debut and ran the ball five times for 28 yards and three touchdowns. His favorite target on the day was DeMonte Coxey, who caught six passes for 131 yards. It's early, but given how slowly some CFL quarterbacks have started, we've already talked about Bolivia by Mitchell, Taylor Cornelius, among others. Do you view Kelly as a top three quarterback in the CFL right now? Oh, that's a tough one, Hodge. I'm going to push back on that right now. I think the top three that we've seen so far this season, clearly it's, it's Zach Caleros. It's Trevor Harris. It's Vernon Adams Jr. But can Chad Kelly be in that top three or even number one by the end of the season? I think that is well within the realm of possibility. I was very impressed with his first half performance in his debut as the Argonauts starter. We all know I've been pounding the table for Kelly for well over a year now. I think he has all of the physical tools to be successful. He brings infectious energy to the field anytime he plays. And we saw the flashes, some of that arm strength he showed off on that deep ball to DeMonte Coxie. That was impressive. The way he ran on that first short yardage touchdown and juked out Jagarrett Davis and then headed for the end zone. That Ooh. was so impressive, right? This is a guy who can do it all. And I think probably Dunk will touch on it. We want him to take less shots going forward because he's no spring chicken anymore. He's 29 years old. He probably shouldn't be taking unnecessary hits at the end of a game. But that's part of who he is, right? That's that's the type of excitement and passion and fire you get from Chad Kelly. And this is but a taste, I truly believe, of what we're going to see this season from him. He's not going to quite reach the Nathan Rourke echelon that we saw last year in terms of that highest ceiling. He's going to have more turnovers than that. But this is a guy I truly believe in his first year as starter can be an elite player in the CFL. It's clear to me from talking to Chad Gelly 
Kelly post game in the locker room that he is locked in. This dude seems laser focused. And for what it's worth, he was walking around after doing his post game interview or scrum, I should say, with a box of pizza, like handing out slices, eating, eating pizza. So this guy is an everyman in the locker room, clearly has the room on his side. Ryan Dinwiddie is very much backing Chad Kelly as his quarterback and talking about how high they've been on him. But Ryan Dinwiddie echoed the sentiments of his famous and legendary uncle Jim Kelly when he said, man, you got to take less hits. You got to get down in that situation. I don't care how old you are as a quarterback. You don't ever want to take needless shots. I think Chad Kelly will learn from that. But there was some people online that were trying to downplay Kelly's performance, which I can understand their point of view, but the ball game was out of hand. The Argonauts did a great job of controlling the football on the ground. They were nursing a rather large lead, due in part to Bully by Mitchell's turnovers in that game. And when Mitchell went out, it was relatively over. So you can look at his numbers, 14 to 23, you know, for over 200 yards and three rushing touchdowns and say, meh, it's kind of decent. But that was really done in what, fellas, about a half or even three quarters of football. So he finished drives. He showed you that he's got some moves that we haven't even seen before because he made JG miss in a phone booth. And I asked him about that after, and he said, that move came all the way back from the days when I played fullback. And I started laughing. He's like, no, I'm serious. Go look it up. So he still has that skill set from all the way back when he was a kid playing running back and fullback to make somebody miss in the open field. Like that is a rare move that I don't even think we've seen from Nathan Worker, Vernon Adams Jr., guys who I think would have that type of move in their repertoire. Like he did that in a small amount of space. To me, that was arguably the highlight of the night. I like the deep ball to Coxie as well, but that move to me showed something very unique for Chad Kelly. The one thing I was surprised about, guys, is that the TV rating for this game was not where I thought it would be. I definitely thought it would be over 300,000 and even potentially get to four or 500,000, but to come in less than 300,000 on a Sunday night was somewhat surprising to me considering the Tiger Cats usually have a decent viewing audience and the Argonauts as well. So I wonder if Father's Day had anything to play with that. And they were, to be fair, going up against the final round of the U.S. Open, which went later Eastern time because it was in Los Angeles and there was a stacked leaderboard there and it had a rating of over 400,000 over a super long window. Like the telecast for that started at one and then I think it ended around 10 o'clock Eastern time. So right up against that Argos Ticats game and it was on TSN as well. So maybe that drew some eyeballs away, but I think as Chad Kelly goes along here and the hype builds, that audience will be bigger and the crowd size at BMO will as well. To me, the short list, and, and yeah, I, I like Kelly. To me, he's number four behind the three that JC listed. But the thing that stood out to me about this list is you've got Vernon Adams Jr. here, a guy who a couple years ago nobody wanted, reignited his career. Trevor Harris, a guy who a couple years ago nobody wanted, started off last season as a backup. And you got Chad Kelly, who, uh, oh yeah, was a backup for all of last season. Uh, so when you look at the changing landscape of CFL quarterbacks or maybe guys who have proven doubters wrong following a slump, there's precedent from them popping up. And I hope that some of the guys who are veterans, who are currently in slumps or currently looking to get their game back can do it because the quarterbacking was better in week two than it was in week one. But to be quite frank, 
it still wasn't good enough. We need to see more from our quarterbacks in this league, putting up points, putting up big passes, and that's going to help boost those ratings that Dunk is talking about. The BC Lions visit the Winnipeg Blue Bombers on Thursday night at IG Field in a battle of undefeated West Division teams. The Bombers covered a large spread last week against Saskatchewan and are around six-point favorites against the Leos. Do you think Big Blue can cover again? Well, last week I pointed up to the buffet with my fork and knife and I ate all those points. And guess what? The Bombers not only covered a touchdown in Ryderville, but they, they more than doubled that, right? This was a game the Riders played very well in and they got their butts whooped, right? Like this Winnipeg team, at some point, I still think later on in the year, other teams and injuries will obviously play a large factor in this. But I think other teams will catch up to Winnipeg to at least some extent, give them a run for their money. But it's pretty clear that the road to the Grey Cup, at least in the West Division, very much runs through IG Field. With all due respect to the BC Lions, who I have as the second best team in the West right now, only a little bit over, I would honestly say, probably the Saskatchewan Rough Riders in spot number three at the moment. I, I don't think they're going to be able to come into IG and cover this spread. I certainly don't think they're going to win. Dominic Rimes is out. He's their best receiver in my view. Keon Hatcher's still out. Yes, they get Lucky Whitehead back. That's 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 nice, especially because Winnipeg, by the way, is starting a rookie at boundary cornerback with Demario Houston out. That's one thing to watch. Maybe maybe Vernon Adams Jr. and Lucky Whitehead can get that going, but it's going to be hostile territory. The crowded IG is going to be big. It's going to be loud, and I have the Bombers winning this game and covering that spread. Well, I think it's indisputed that the Winnipeg Blue Bombers are the powerhouse team in the CFL right now. And I simply don't see a half-strength BC Lions offense being them in this game. You need Keon Hatcher and Dominic Rimes healthy to be able to pull that type of upset. But this BC defense, they're the real deal. Ryan Phillips is one of the best young coaches in the CFL right now. They have talent all across the board. Some really quality Canadians there. Guys who are super underrated so i'm gonna pick winnipeg straight up but bc is gonna cover this massive spread i don't want to pick winnipeg to cover until it gets to about three points if it does so later in the week hodge i hope you got your napkin on because this is a lot of points to eat okay and as part of the reason i'm not going to pick the bombers to cover i think they win this game straight up but Brady Oliveira is a game-time decision with a thorax injury, so I think that could play a role here too. And you mentioned the rookie starting at corner, and you got Lucky Whitehead over there who, when he's healthy, is one of the fastest, if not the fastest dude in the league. I think that can be exploited, and I agree with you guys. I think Dominic Rimes being out of the lineup is a real blow to the Lions. I think he's their best receiver, and he's also the receiver that Vernon Adams Jr. seems to trust the most in this group right now and I think the defense is a reason why the Lions can keep this one close and I think the Lions have been underrated a little bit here and yeah they probably should have scored some more points against Edmonton last week but I think that Elks defense is actually really good and I think Chris Jones has not going so I see a tighter ball game and it's really hard to continue to win by margins like the Bombers have done in the CFL when it's such a small league and now the Lions have a couple games of tape to study. So give me the Lions to cover, especially if it gets up over that seven number. But I like the Bombers to win yet again. Zach Calaris has never lost to the BC Lions. You guys are welcome to eat, uh, or I'll, I'll eat the points 
and next week you guys can eat your words. The Montreal Alouettes are coming off a bye and head to Steeltown for a matchup with the Hamilton Tiger Cats. Matthew Schiltz will get the start in place of an injured bully by Mitchell, and the Tabbies are short favorites after originally being favored by a field goal in this game. JC, can the Tabbies get their first win of the season without their $500,000 man? I think they can. This is an interesting line because the Tie Cats are 0-2 and have not looked good through two games. The Alouettes won their first game, but yet Hamilton is favored. And I think this is correct. Right now, Matthew Schiltz might be a better option under Sanger than Bo Levon Mitchell has been the last two weeks. I think that offense is going to look a little bit better this week. And even though Montreal got a close victory over a bad Ottawa team in week one, I still don't have complete faith in that team. They've got some major holes, some young players who are going to have to prove it to me. I'm picking Hamilton to win this game. Yeah, Montreal won like a mud fight in week one with Ottawa. That game was not glitzy or glamorous at all. And I like the value on the Tiger Cats here. And they have the better playmakers. Duke Williams, Tim White, James Butler. Give me them over whoever the Alouettes are going to run out there. I don't care if Austin Mack flashed in week one. And yes, I know they have Willie Stan back back there. But I like the Tiger Cats in this spot. Short home favorites. There's going to be a lot of energy there at Tim Hortons Field. And the pressure is ratcheting up real quick on Orlando Steinauer in his group. And I actually think they are some Bo Levi Mitchell turnovers away from at least having one win, if not two. If those turnovers stop, Matthew Schultz takes care of the football and add in his ability to run with it a little bit when needed. I think there's great value here on Hamilton to win this game straight up and cover. Yeah, I'm going to take Hamilton up to a field goal. To me, this team I don't think is going to look worse, frankly, with Matthew Schultz under center, at least given the version of Bolivar Mitchell we saw in the first two weeks of the season. I'm happy to take the Tabbies as short favorites. I think this line actually is a little bit deflated because the Alouettes are coming off a win. Though, as Doug said, you know, a win is a win. It counts as two points of the statics, but it was not a terribly impressive win as far as victories go. The Saskatchewan Rough Riders go to Cowtown on Saturday, where the green and white duel against the Calgary Stampeders in a battle of one-and-one teams. Trevor Harris threw for over 400 yards in last week's loss, while Jake Mayer is still looking to get comfortable at the controls for the Stamps. Calgary is a three-and-a-half-point favorite in this one. Do you think there's still value in taking the points? Definitely there's value in taking the points and the Ruffies on the money line. When you hear this podcast or watch it on YouTube, you got to get your money down before this line changes because I can't understand how the Rough Riders are getting three in the hook on the road for as good as they have looked. And there's a possibility that Derek Moncrief could be back in some form or fashion on defense. Craig Dickinson said he probably wouldn't start, but he likes to play things coy. So I think Moncrief back in the lineup could be a real bonus. For that defense and Trevor Harris seems to have all kinds of confidence and quickly developed a rhythm with these receivers in his receiving core. Sean Bain Jr. has had this one circled ever since leaving Calgary to go to Saskatchewan and get paid properly. So he's coming off a great game against the Blue Bombers. His confidence is high. I like Saskatchewan to win straight up spread money line. Put your money down. Count all that green cash. The one concern I have here for the Riders is last season when the Bombers went into Mosaic Stadium on Labor Day and the Bombers beat 
the Riders. Craig Dickinson talked about how that kind of deflated his team because the Riders played very well in that game, came away with a narrow loss. I believe Mark Leggio kicked a 55-yard field goal for the W. And they came out of the Banjo Bowl next week, albeit with stomach flu ravaging the team, but just played terribly, got their butts whipped. So to me, my only concern in this one, as great as the Riders played last week, they played very well despite losing by, I think it was 17 points. Are they going to come out deflated again? Because they played a great game against their Prairie rivals and still lost by a sizable margin. That said, it is still early in the season. So maybe that type of performance buoys the Riders a little bit. I'm not willing to to go crazy on this spread. I would say up to plus three. I'm happy to 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 take the Riders, take the points, and beyond plus three. Under plus three, I'd be tempted to take the Stamps because I do think the Stampeders are going to win this game straight up at home, but I think it's going to be very close. So if you can get plus three or higher, again, I like the Riders. Under that, I'm a little skeptical. With all due respect, Hodge, the performance of the team last year in a game where they were plagued by diarrhea and vomit plays no part in my decision-making here on this spread. That was the Banjo Bowl. Didn't you say Labor Day? The one afterwards when they they had the stomach flu. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway, that plays no part in my decision here. I love the riders in this matchup, and it comes down to quarterbacks. Trevor Harris looked far better in his game last week. 400 yards passing. I thought it was a legitimate performance from him. It wasn't inflated at all. He looked crisp despite the injury. And Jake Mayer... He threw for 300 yards. People are going to be higher on him this week than they were in the past. But two-thirds of that, almost 200 yards, came after the catch. He's still dinking and dunking his way down the field, relying on his receivers on screens. That's not a way to win consistently in the CFL. So give me the Riders because I trust Trevor Harris. The Edmonton Elks are trying to snap an 18-game losing streak. Where have you heard that before? On Sunday, when the Green and Gold hosts the defending Grey Cup champion Toronto Argonauts, Chad Kelly and company looked great in the Double Blues season opener last week, beating the Ticats by 18 points at BMO Field. The Elks sticking with Taylor Cornelius at QB for now, despite being shut out last week in Vancouver, and are seven-point underdogs at Commonwealth Stadium. Who do you have in this one, and why? I uh, seven point home dog to me is barking. It's screaming. It wants me to take it. But how do you pick a team to cover a seven point spread when they just scored a grand total of zero points? That is that is my struggle, especially when it appears they're going to trot out literally the exact same offensive group that they did a week ago for that reason. And for that reason alone, I need to take the Toronto Argonauts right now. I've got them at minus six and a half. I, I don't think I'd go beyond seven points, but if it's a touchdown, yes. And and I think one of the things that goes overlooked, Dunk mentioned it earlier, is Corey Mace's defense has been sensational. They do a great job of rotating along that front. They've got a lot of underrated players there. Robbie Smith is one of them. Thomas Costigan is another guy who can do a lot of damage coming off the edge in a rotational role. I think that this game is, is not going to be a blowout. I think Edmonton is going to look better but I'm skeptical that they will be able to keep it in seven. I will take the Argos as much as I detest picking against such a big home underdog. News for all you people out there who bought a guaranteed win ticket earlier this year. 
you're probably coming back for another week at Commonwealth Stadium because I don't think Edmonton pulls this out. Now, this is going to be a real test for Chad Kelly because I do think that Chris Jones' defense is legit. He's one of the best defensive minds in the CFL, and he's really going to to test a younger quarterback in Chad Kelly who doesn't have a whole lot of experience. It'll be telling how he performs. But with Taylor Cornelius under center, I cannot trust the Elks at all in this game to perform offensively until they make a change at quarterback. I'm picking Toronto to win and to cover no matter how big that spread gets. There is no way I would encourage or tell anyone out there to put down their hard-earned money on the Edmonton Elks until they show any signs of life on offense. And that's earth to Taylor Cornelius. So I'm going to do what even I don't love. And I would agree with Hodge. Lay the points on the road. I'm like Hodge. I got my fork and knife out with my napkin on, ready to eat my tofu and kale salad and gobble up all of these points because I just cannot lay any money on the Elks. I don't even care what the spread is right now. If it goes over seven, that's fine because they just have shown they cannot move the football consistently. And this Argonauts defense, a good chunk of it have played together for a while and have some chemistry and they're getting... Jamal Peters back at corner. Like they had a 21 year old starting last week in Quintez Stiggers, who intercepted Bo Levi Mitchell. And they decided to go with him because they wanted to get Peters back up to speed after he came back after being released from the Atlanta Falcons. But they really like Stiggers' upside, but they're getting Peters back. So it's going to get even more difficult for Cornelius to try to score points here. So I'm doing it. I'll take the defending champs on the road, even though I think the number's a little bit inflated and it's going to be difficult for Chad Kelly to score points against Chris Jones, but sign me up for the double blue. The nice thing about splitting a buffet with Dunk is he'll eat all the stuff I don't want. He can keep the kale. You keep the tofu. I got the rest covered, baby. You need your greens, bro. Yeah, there's lots of green foods I like. Kale, I'm not a kale guy. No time for Hodges Heritage Bowman. On this day in 2000, Willie Pless played his final game of his CFL career. The Alabama native played 14 CFL seasons with Toronto, BC, Edmonton, and Saskatchewan, dressing for one preseason game with Edmonton to retire as a member of the team. The 11-time CFL All-Star recorded a league record 1,241 tackles, along with 84 sacks and 39 interceptions. He was named the CFL's most outstanding defensive player a record five times and remains the only player to receive the honor more than three times. He appeared in three great cups, winning one and was inducted into the Canadian Football Hall of Fame in 2005. Now, it should be noted that the CFL did not track tackles as an official t- statistic until 1987, which was the second year of Plessis' career. For further context on his total numbers, Adam Big Hill the league's active leading tackler with 826 remains over 400 behind Pless's all-time record. Dunk, you're old enough to remember Willie Pless playing. What do you recall about the legendary linebacker? Dude, this guy, it didn't matter what jersey he had on because sometimes you had to get it figured out back in the day because he was switching teams a little bit, but when the CFL was broadcast on CBC, from what I remember watching it, it was like, Willie Pless on the tackle, Willie Pless on the tackle, Willie Pless on the tackle. Like, I feel like Mark Lee and Chris Walby and Chris Cuthbert and whoever else was calling those games back in the day said his name like every other play. The dude was just always there. He was so great at diagnosing plays. And 
was a guy who was very athletic at the linebacker position, but still had that size. So I'll just always remember his name being said. It felt like almost every other down. That obviously wasn't the case, but the guy made a lot of tackles. And I wanted to get in a subtle jab here, something about the CFL and not keeping stats. I don't even know how you found these <laughs> stats, Hodge, on Adam Big Hill, Willie Pless, or anybody else. Well, the CFL has all the records up till 2022 publicly available, and they do have the 2023 stats available to week two. So I was able to put them together. It was just a lot more convoluted than it probably should have been. But anyways, it's time for the three-minute drill. TD Atlantic has sold out for the second consecutive year, though it took significantly longer to reach capacity than it did a year ago. Are you excited for the game, Hodge? I am excited. I wasn't at last year's game. I'm going to be at this year's game. The one downside, this year's event is really only 48 hours. Last year was like a four-day thing. So clearly on the ground, this is a pared-down event. But the ticket prices were doubled. BC Lions offensive lineman Philip Norman collapsed at practice last week and was rushed to hospital where he spent several days in recovery. He was at Lions practice on Tuesday and appears to be making a full recovery. JC, what can you tell us about his status? Well, he went. He underwent a whole whack load of tests and, and nothing came back. It's all inconclusive at this stage. They're still trying to figure out what exactly happened. But Norman wants to come back and play again. And he's back with the team. They're happy to have him around. It was a traumatic incident for the Lions last week. They battled through it to still get the victory. But they're happy that their teammate is back and in good condition. It could have been a whole lot worse. The CFL's TV ratings in week two were up from week one. Is that an encouraging sign for the league? It definitely is. I think part of it was the fact that the NBA Finals and the Stanley Cup Final are over. Those are big TV events that the CFL has to go up against early in the season. But the ratings from week two are up on the site on freedonation.com. You can go check them out told me that when you put your best out there, you get some big ratings. Like the Saskatchewan-Winnipeg game had a rating of almost 700,000 viewers. So that would be a great idea to start the season off. Fortunately, though, for the league, that game was on CBS Sports. So people would have seen a high-scoring shootout that had over 700 yards of passing. And I think, what was it, five or six or seven touchdowns combined throwing between the two guys? Yeah. The Edmonton Elks have honored the closure of local sports radio station TSN 1260 with a special ticket promotion. What do you think of the initiative? I think it's great all the way around. It gives closure for the folks who worked at that station. It gives closure for the people who listen to that station on a daily basis. And obviously, at a, albeit at a discounted rate, it still gets a ton of people in the door at Commonwealth Stadium. And the Elks have the opportunity, I think, to do a lot of things like this because their building is so bloody big, right? They, this wouldn't work in some buildings where there's no there's no room to, to give away discounted tickets or, or to do things like this. A Commonwealth where you're never going to sell out all 60,000 seats anyways, why not do something like this? I think it's great. Dominic Rhines is out for Thursday's game in Winnipeg, though BC will get Lucky Whitehead back from a hamstring injury. Is that a big deal? It's a huge deal, and it's nice to have Lucky Whitehead back in the fold to take the top off a of defense, but the loss of Rhymes is impactful. This is the guy who really makes the BC Lions offense run. 
We saw it this past week. Him and VA were not on the same page early in that game. They struggled offensively. It wasn't until Vernon Adams Jr. found him for, on a 21-yard route down the seam that that offense really started to click. He is the engine. It's going to be interesting to see what they look like without him on the field. Four-time All-Star offensive tackle Derek Dennis announced his retirement from the CFL. How will you remember the gregarious blocker? A dude who was a great personality in this league that, quite frankly, we need more of. And I hope we see more guys like Derek Dennis come along in the CFL to help build the hype around these players who deserve it so much. The Hamilton Tiger Cats signed Canadian kicker Mark Leggio after placing Seth Small on the suspended list. Was that a savvy move? I do think it was a savvy move. Mark Leggio, yes, he had some challenges under pressure situations in Winnipeg, but there are very few Canadians who can do all three jobs at a competent level, and he can do that. That type of versatility with that passport is important. The Montreal Alouettes released Canadian linebacker Brian Harrell-Amana this week, who is set to join the Saskatchewan Rough Riders. Was his release a surprise? Was I surprised that Noel Thorpe couldn't find a way to use a talented Canadian linebacker? No, that did not surprise me. It does, in fact, surprise me that they let such a player walk, though, because I think Brian Harrell-Amana looked good last year. He had a couple starts under his belt. He can play on special teams. That's a valuable piece that you have to give up, and a local piece at that for the Montreal Alouettes, but he was not going to see the field in that defensive structure. The Hamilton Tiger Cats signed Canadian offensive lineman Noah Zer after the unit suffered yet another injury, this time to Coulter Woodmansey at guard. Can he help the Ticats O-line? He definitely can. I really thought Zer would be better in terms of when he was drafted and coming out of the University of Saskatchewan. So it's nice to see he's getting another chance, but he's got to understand that these aren't going to continue coming. He's got to make the most of this opportunity. The Edmonton Elks moved veteran defensive back Ed Ganey to the six-game injured list. Do you think his season could be over? Well, Chris Jones was not willing to rule it out this week when he spoke to the media, but he did also talk about the recovery for that injury in terms of months, not weeks. And so at his age, 33, one would have to think there's a chance we've seen the last of Ed Ganey at least for this season. On that note, we thank you as always for listening to the Three Down Nation podcast. Enjoy week three of CFL action, and we'll see you again next Wednesday for our next episode. Bet MGM has an unreal deal for sports fans in Virginia. Turn $5 into $150 instantly when you place your first wager at Bet MGM. Simply download the Bet MGM app and sign up using code CHAMPION150. Then, Place a $5 wager on any sport. You'll receive $150 in bonus bets, regardless of your wager's outcome. And if you think the fun stops there, the king of sportsbooks has plenty of surprises in store. Check out daily promotions, same game parlays, live bets, and so much more. Download the app in Virginia today and get $150 in bonus bets instantly from your first wager. Only at BetMGM. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Virginia only. New customer offer. Subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Please gamble responsibly. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C.